Hello, everyone. It's my pleasure to welcome you to another episode of In the Belly of the Beast. Today, we will be highlighting the work of one of our comrades, Dr. Rai Sigalkow. I'll say a few words of a formal introduction to Rai, but I also want to follow those words with some words of my own. Somehow, it seems insufficient to read a crafted introduction for such a creative scholar, teacher, and activist. So here is the more formal introduction. Uh, Dr. Sigalkow is the Director of Programs in Faith and Praxis at the University of St. Thomas. He earned a PhD in Theology in Christian Ethics from Princeton Theological Seminary and an MA and BA in Theology from St. Thomas. He teaches classes on a range of subjects, focusing on issues at the intersection of race, gender, and class, including courses on liberation theology, contextual theology, and theologies of migration, with a special emphasis on the personal and practical dimensions of theology. Rai is also a former Mennonite pastor and a co-founder of the local faith-based organization, Pueblos de Lucha y Esperanza. So let me now add a few words of my own um, to supplement this introduction. Uh, Rai is, uh, is an incredibly voracious reader, but not just in the sense of uh, ticking off a list of books. Uh, he engages them, he reflects on them, and he wrestles with the writer's conclusions. Uh, his reading makes him obviously an informed and thoughtful discussant, but Rai doesn't just bring academic knowledge to the table. Uh, he believes in praxis and community engagement. He's often on the streets taking on some of the most urgent issues of our day, uh, whether it be police violence, immigrants' rights, or climate change. And of course, uh, he doesn't just talk about these with his friends and, and, and the people he works with, but his students as well, and they wrestle with these issues. Um, one thing I'll say about Rai is that he doesn't pretend to offer bad solutions to any of these uh, issues, they are, after all, very complex ones. Instead, he listens and he engages the students in critical conversations. Uh, this is why I'm so excited that all of you will have an opportunity to hear from him today. I think you'll um, leave the podcast with lots of thoughts swimming in your head. You'll have questions, and I think this is precisely the sort of person he is. Uh, he makes you think, uh, and he makes you want to do something about the world we live in. Um, I haven't known Rai for very long, but I, I can say that in, in these few years, I've learned a lot from my conversations with him. And these conversations run the gamut from economics, politics, culture, critical theory, theology, and so on. Um, so I think uh, you'll find that this, this podcast today will reflect those uh, many interests. And speaking of interests, I think it would be um, uh, unwise to leave this introduction without saying something about some uh, something else Rai is very good at. He's a fantastic uh, pizza maker. I have sampled his Detroit pizza, and I can tell you uh, it is amazing. Um, and he can talk about pizza quite a lot. Um, so a hint, right? Uh, anytime you want to try uh, any new kind of pizza, please remember that your podcast mates are more than willing to uh, sample your, uh, your creations. Okay. Uh, but let me then uh, come to the first question, uh, which is not about pizza but more about your intellectual journey. I think, I think this is a question that many of us think about and, and, and we talked about this a little bit in our first episode. 
But uh, could you tell us a little bit about how your interest in theology developed? What were the intellectual roots of that journey? Um, why theology um, and, and so on? So that would be um, uh, something I think we could begin with and, and our listeners would be interested in knowing a little more about that particular trajectory of your intellectual journey. Yeah, thanks, Kanishka. That was a wonderful introduction. I feel like it's probably a lot of those things were probably not true about me, except for the pizza. I do think that I can make a pizza. Very kind of you to say those those words. Um, how I was drawn to theology? It's a good question. I I grew up in the in the church. Uh, my parents were musicians. Uh, they sang for children, and so I grew up around the church and music and choir. Uh, my grandfather was a choir director, and I always dreamed of being a choir director myself. But in my first semester at university, I went to this a small school out in New Brunswick, Canada, right at the border of the U.S. and Canada. In my first semester, I took a class called Introduction to the Old Testament, and I was blown away by the fact that the Bible didn't just fall down from heaven, that it had a history to it, that the text uh, went through uh, processes that uh, throughout its transmission history. And so I got very interested in this sort of like the historicity, I guess, of the biblical text. And that really challenged me. And I always tell students that during that first semester of university, I was very challenged by this idea that the Bible had errors. I thought, well, no, the Bible's perfect. The Bible's inerrant. And I thought I couldn't trust my faith anymore if it wasn't. So I, I picked up my Bible in the middle of class one day and I threw it across the room and hit the wall. And I said, if this thing is not the inerrant word of God, then our faith is in vain. And I always tell students that was the day I became a theologian because I something in me pushed me to want to think deep more deeply about the faith that I inherited. And, you know, what is, what is this all about? Who is God? What is this text about? If, so I think that was the beginning to the sort of studying theology, although that entry point was really in biblical studies. So that was a biblical studies scholar. And I, and I thought, okay, that's what I'll do. I'll read the Bible and I'll do historical criticism, which is, you know, looking at the Bible from an historical perspective and um, beginning to sort of critique inherited ideas about the Bible and, and excavating kind of the historical issues. That turned out to be um, an exercise that was, you know, kind of led me to kind of critical thinking about the text, but it didn't really lead me to any kind of commitment other than just kind of criticism of the text, criticism of theology. And I think the real shift happened in my move to theology proper was probably because of the war that was breaking out at the time, actually. Uh, the U.S. invading Iraq and Afghanistan. I was 18 when 9-11 happened. I saw a lot of people at the church that I grew up in and, and a lot of Christians support the war. And I think that kind of lit my political consciousness, I suppose. And I became active in the anti-war movement, actually through taking some classes at St. Thomas, just some peace studies with Jack Austin Palmeyer and Mark Davidoff, and learning about uh, the history of anti-war resistance. Um, I think through that, I began to think more about, okay, well, what are my commitments? Perhaps my faith might be connected to my commitments against war and violence. So anyway, it's a long way of talking about it, but I ended up going more into theology, thinking more maybe systematic theology, was at St. Thomas, where they had 
more of a theology department. They have biblical studies as well, but I had to take all these theology courses. We could talk about the difference between theology and biblical studies, but um, I suppose the difference became more, you know, less about deconstruction of the text and its history and more about um, how we're going to live in the world, which kind of brought me eventually to ethics and theological ethics. In biblical studies, too, I should say, if you're going to be a biblical scholar, you have to know, you have to learn Greek, Hebrew, of course, French and German. Uh, but then you also have to know other ancient languages, like two or three other ancient languages. And I, I had trouble learning those languages. And I was like, I didn't get into this stuff just to like uh, study Greek. You know, I want to I want to do something more than that. And so I think, yeah, that's how I moved to something like more like theology, which is a bit broader and a bit more constructive and allows me to kind of move in a more imaginative space. That's a long answer to your question. I don't really know how I end up in theology. Um, but that's it. Thanks for that response, Ray. That was really fascinating. Um, and I love that <laughs> little bit about throwing the Bible across the room. I'd love to know the reaction of the students in the class and the teacher as well. But that kind of uh, brings me to, to a follow-up question, and that is you are uh, anything but a conventional thinker. You are uh, someone who, um, who does not take on uh, you know, so-called uh, perceived wisdom and, and just say, okay, that's how things are and, and, and leave it at that. Um, so you are what I would call an oppositional scholar, someone who's, who's uh, seriously engaged in questioning uh, the terms, the paradigms, the intellectual models that have been given to us. And, and I would like to know a little bit about that particular uh, form of interest you have and how, how you came to develop that kind of angle to your, to your own work and scholarship. Yeah, I mean, I've always been sort of uh, an oppositional person, like ever since I was a little child, I've been told, you know, kind of stubborn is what I was told, or, you know, someone who would, would uh, say no, I never understood why I had to do what my parents told me to do, you know, they're not the boss of me. So I, I've always been kind of a nonconformist. And that's, I think, what drew me to the Anabaptist tradition, the Mennonite church is their long history of nonconformity. But I've been in these spaces, you know, I did it. My, my bachelor's and master's degree at St. Thomas and, and my master's at the St. Paul Seminary School of Divinity. And I didn't really conform. And yet I tried to learn as much as I could, you know. I mean, I, 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 I say I'm a nonconformist, I'm oppositional, but I do try to really learn from others. And I tried to learn from the Catholic tradition and tried to sort of sit with that for a while and learn as much as I could from it. And then I went to Princeton Seminary, which is a Presbyterian seminary and very, very Presbyterian, very... Um, very mainline Protestant, very, you know, kind of a liberal mainline Protestant uh, seminary and, uh, and, and somewhat establishment kind of theology. And uh, of course, I wanted to do apocalyptic and I thought that that meant a break from established uh, forms of theology. So I was uh, a nonconformist there too. And, and I, didn't, I didn't really uh, fit in uh, often. And um, yeah, that's in some ways, that's why I became a pastor, I think, is, is that... Um, I didn't follow the kind of traditional academic route um, in terms of uh, studying the kinds of things that might get me a position at, at an institution. Um, so I've, I've, I guess I've paid some of the price for that, but um, not, not to sound like I'm did a lot of sacrificing. I've been very fortunate, but that oppositional perspective has not always been welcomed. So, <clears throat> Ryan, what does it mean? You said you went to Princeton, you wanted to do apocalyptic. What does that mean? What does it mean to do apocalyptic theologies. 
Yeah. I mean, apocalyptic in theology, you know, is often associated with, uh, like you might think of like the book of Revelation, right? Or Daniel in the Old Testament, um, uh, where we have, you know, apocalyptic imagery of, you know, the beast or, you know, different mythological ideas from, um, from the scriptural texts, right? That kind of uh, personify evil in different kinds of uh, myths and symbols. And so apocalyptic, you know, tends to be seen as sort of a genre, a literary genre, or, you know, associated with a certain theological form uh, within the Bible. My interest in apocalyptic, I guess, is cl more closely connected to a way to talk about the powers of injustice, the systems that uh, wreak havoc on our world in a way that, that sort of gets at the, the sense of uh, both their depth, I guess, in terms of, of how bad things are. <laughs> and also, I think, yeah, well, I guess I'll just, I'll, I guess I'll just say that. Um, apocalyptic, I, I should say, from the Greek, right, is apocalypsis, which means revelation. And so it has this kind of connotation of unveiling an unveiling of some kind of truth. Uh, it, it has a connotation of, of rupture. And so I, I was drawn to, I think initially with apocalyptic discourse, drawn to thinkers, you know, in critical theory, uh, like um, uh, Walter Benjamin, Jakob Tolbis, uh, Ernst Bloch, figures like that within the German continental tradition. And then in German theology too, there's a sort of apocalyptic um, theologians of, of the, the, the 20th century. Yeah, so that's associated with sort of Weimar, Weimar Germany and the kinds of things that were happening there. But it's, it's become a much broader interest for me now, uh, thinking about apocalyptic in different, uh, geographically, right? Emerging in different geographies, different contexts, different, um, different traditions, different, different times and places. So it's become a much broader interest. Uh, right. Is that, do you, were you drawn to that? You said like apocalyptics is a way to talk about the powers of injustice um, and to think about revelation. Were you drawn to that because of like observation and life experience or you read these people and you're like, yeah, that speaks to me. Like why were, why were you drawn to those? I think initially I was, I was interested in a, in a radical political discourse, a radical theological discourse, I, I should say that had political teeth. And I think initially that was because of, within the context of the Obama era, when I was in graduate school, I felt like a lot of theological engagements with the political were uh, reformist and uh, liberal. And I wanted, um, I wanted a radical politics that could emerge from, that would have a connection to theological language. Um, so I think the Obama era was part of that initially. I would say that my work took on a different tone, um, probably uh, after the, the killing of Jamar Clark uh, here in North Minneapolis. Um, I had just recently become a pastor during that time. Um, and, and I would say probably previously uh, after the death of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown, the, the kind of first iteration of the Black Lives Matter movement I can recall one experience and a, and a shift that really took place for me when it was, I think, the first or second night after uh, the shooting of Jamar Clark and um, folks from the community were occupying the fourth precinct, which is not too far away from where I live. And I went over there 
uh, with my brother in the evening. It was raining. It was November. Um, it was a rainy November night. And um, I remember people screaming and weeping outside of uh, the, the police uh, precinct. And I remember the police um, in their vehicles, standing outside their vehicles under the, the, the spotlights. And they were laughing and they were burping. And they were yelling back and uh, at the people laughing at laughing at the community members. And I would say that 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 might have been the first time where I felt like I, I, I saw something like the devil. And I understood more, I guess, what uh, kind of the language of the demonic looks like. But I also in those cries and, and, and my experience in that moment, I also saw something of what life might look like and in, in, in prayer you know, and the weeping and the screaming. Um, so that was a turning point for me, though. And there have been a number of turning points like that that I would call like revelatory moments where where something really, really shifts in me. Um, and the war was probably like that before as well. I mean, where I, where I have these apocalyptic moments where I, where I change, where something in me changes. I, I become converted to a different kind of framework, a different way of living. And that really changes the way I read and think and act in the world. So yeah, there are these kind of, and I'm drawn to people who have apocalyptic kind of moments or revelatory moments that that move them to to a kind of conversion and to a kind of commitment that, you know, for most of the people that I really love, they it, it they they risk their lives and they they're usually killed for it. I know we're going to move to another question. I just want to say thanks for sharing that. That was really powerful to sort of um, be with you in that that November evening. So thanks, Ryan, for being real. Yeah. Right. I, yeah, I think that um, that that anecdote that you just told is really sort of in, indicative of the kind of person that you are. And, you know, I was thinking about how, you know, we met, I don't know how many years ago now, but maybe like eight years ago or something like that, quite a while ago. And it was on an elevator in one of the buildings on St. Thomas campus and uh, you jumped on and we're like, Hey, you know, you teach African-American literature or whatever. And I was, I didn't know you from Adam. And uh, I was like, there's, there's a white guy, like just as assaulting me with asking me questions or whatever. And, but, but we eventually sat down and had a conversation together. And I sort of realized like this guy was really different from, um, uh, from people that I've met and the way that he talks and specifically the way that he talks about, um, God and belief. And I wanted to ask you this question because, you know, I, I grew up in Southwest Missouri in, you know, a place that was very, very, very Protestant, like very, very, very fundamentalist, almost, you know, the belt buckle of the Bible belt in a lot of ways. And so I've been, I've talked to people about religion a lot my whole life. I was Catholic. I grew up Catholic, which was like pretty much worse than being black there. Um, and so uh, there were, were a lot of conversations which were very uncomfortable for me. But I think, you know, I was thinking about the way that people often in the traditions and where I grew up talked about their relationship to God or the way that they sort of lived a relationship with God, which was one of having something that other people didn't have and sort of like shutting themselves off from other people because those people are, you know, demonic or those people are essentially like contagious with the way that they're living in the world. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you've come to sort of understand a relationship with God or even a concept of God um, that's different from that, you know, because as you've been talking, it seems like a kind of relationship or understanding of God in which 
you're you're compelled to do something about things that are wrong in the world rather than sort of like shut yourself away from those things or just condemn them or you know try to change those people and make them believe the way that I do you know that sort of thing do you you know what I'm talking about yeah yeah I think so yeah I mean I would say that um, part of the some of the work that I was doing in graduate school and I, I don't really focus on this as much but it was related to my dissertation I guess was an attempt to sort of use apocalyptic theology to critique what I called ecclesiocentrism, which is this, um, which was a movement in late 20th century theology, and it's still kind of going on, but uh, among uh, so-called post-liberal theologians. And, and part of this movement was to say that um, Christ, God, all of these things are in the church as an institution, in the church's life, um, or... Uh, God is in the sacraments, or um, in, in one way or another, they were all ways of saying that that God is to be connected to a particular people. And in some ways, this was a this was a theology that did have some political teeth because the idea was, well, if the church is separate from the world and is distinctive in these ways, um, then it can also be a way to not conform to the world or resist uh, different injustices. But what I found was that it was a way to actually capture Christ or capture God. And so uh, early on, I guess, in my in my graduate studies, I began to sort of challenge this idea that Christ or God or faith could ever be something that we could possess. And so, um, yeah, I, I guess I, I thought more in terms of the kind of yeah dispossession of the church of its claims to superiority. And so a lot of my thinking, I guess, has been related to that. So it's I, I, I don't think ecclesially, I don't think ecclesiastically about God. I think about God is active in the world. And I think about faith as a, a matter of commitment and a matter of praxis in relation uh, to what's happening in the world. Uh, not so much something that happens uh, with an institution called church. Now that became hard when I became a pastor. I was like, okay, how do I wrestle with this? Because I was often accused of being against the church. In fact, in my doctoral dissertation, I mean, one of my advisors said, well, Rye, this is all great, but you, you don't seem to have any account of the church at all. And I said, well, I'm a pastor. So clearly I'm invested in the church in some kind of way. But I've tried to figure out exactly what, what it is that, you know, you know, because uh, I want an account, I guess, of, you know, people, right, and people coming together and, and a kind of uh, sense of community and action. But I don't, whether that's the church or a particular people that possesses, you know, the truth in some kind of way, I, I don't I don't really jive with that, I guess. I, so um, I wondered also, I mean, I have 100 questions, and I think we all sort of are really fascinated with your work, partially because it is so... Uh, I don't foreign seems like a strong word, but in a way it is foreign to us, you know, like as an academic, you know, being educated at a state university, you know, for graduate school, like we didn't, we ran, we ran into um, religious studies people, but not theologians so much, you know? And so I didn't, I don't have, basically I can only rely on my undergraduate education, you know, from the Jesuits, which, uh, which gave me a little bit of theology, you know, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about liberation theology and just sort of give the listeners a sense of of what that is and what that means. And I think it really probably will build on your last answer, your answer to my last question. Yeah. Um, liberation theology, 
it, there are different origin stories to liberation theology. In some ways, it, I, you know, part of what I think I would argue is that there have always been theologies of liberation, theologies devoted to to freedom, to life. You know, and we might think of the Exodus story, which is a which is a story, a, a biblical text that that theolo- liberation theologians often draw upon. But if you recall, the Exodus story is this story of freedom, right? It's an abolitionist movement, um, right? The people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. They are, are forced to work under harsh conditions. They're in exile from the, their homeland. And uh, the Exodus story is this movement toward freedom. And if you recall, the in that story, right before uh, Moses goes to, to tell Pharaoh to let his people go, right? There's the burning bush. Well, this is a revelation. This is a kind of apocalyptic revelation, right? The burning bush. And the burning bush is this, you know, that what, what burns in the bush begins to burn in Moses's heart. And the call, right, is that uh, of God, right, is to let my people go. That's the call. And that's, the, that's, that's where God's name is revealed in the Hebrew scriptures. We've actually been talking about this in class. It's also uh, connected to the Quran. So God's name is revealed as a God who is against slavery. That's fundamental and for freedom. So liberation theology, I would say, begins there. <laughs> it really begins. I mean, the Bible is a, is a text of liberation. That is the fundamental message of the Bible, I would argue, is liberation. Now, of course, the text has been distorted in all these ways. And there are many things in that text that you can take up and, and do whatever you want with and, and turn it in various ways. But you know, I think a lot of early liberation theologians, and here I'm thinking of James Cone, who wrote a book called Black Theology and Black Power, and then a, a Black Theology Liberation, and a book called God of the Oppressed, uh, and also Gustavo Gutierrez. You know, many of these theologians wanted to insist that actually this is the message of the Bible. <laughs> it's not something that we're imposing on the Bible, that, you know, that they're doing a kind of plain reading of the Bible. This is what the text says. Yeah, so liberation theology, you know, emerges from various places around the world. Uh, um, it's connected in, within Catholicism in Latin America with Gustavo Gutierrez. Uh, this is post-Vatican II moment, the rise of base communities, which were communities throughout Latin America, rereading the Bible again uh, as lay people, in, you know, the poor reading the Bible together and seeing that God is a God of life and... and, and um, not of, of death and not of, not of injustice and, and destruction. Yeah, so yeah, liber- that's, I guess, a bit about liberation theology. I don't, I don't know, you know, I could go into talk about this for a lot longer, but um, it's contextual too. It's connected to context, right? Um, it's not an abstract theology. It's not an idealist theology. It's, it's a, a theology that, that, that emerges from the context in which people live and it's expressed in that way too. Right, you when I we've talked about liberation theology before. You give me some coaching for how to how to think about it with justice and peace studies students. You've always you've used liberation theologies, like plural, um, and I think you just spoke to that. But I wonder if you could just clarify for us, like why it's not theology theologies, and then that, yeah, and then I have a kind of follow up. But maybe maybe let's go with that real quick. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. Uh, it's theologies. You know, I think about. Um, yeah, that it's it's perhaps there is a kind of materialism I think that runs through liberation theology. Um, you know, it's been at various points critiqued for its Marxism or 
or extol for it, it's Marxism. And uh, you know, various theolog various liberation theologians would have their own relationship to Marxism, of course. But I would say it, it is it is a I guess it, it thinks in terms of there are many expressions of faith and there are many contexts, right? Um, how uh, liberation is going to be expressed in, among uh, uh, Filipino women uh, is going to be different than how it'll be expressed in Sri Lanka, is going to be different than how it's expressed in Peru, and at different times and places, how, you know, what, what, um, what life looks like and what praxis looks like, a praxis that moves towards freedom is going to look different, it's going to be expressed differently. But I think liberation theology, to call it liberation theology is to begin to name some some distinctive um, or, or, or lines of continuity, right? Some shared features. And not all of those theologians, you know, would want their, you know, there, there are some theologians that would stand sort of in that tradition that would also critique certain masculinist kind of um, dimensions of some liberation theology. Uh, that was certainly a, a concern about uh, figures like Cone at times, particularly Cone's early work, that it was it, it carried a kind of um, yeah, a kind of masculinity, I guess, a kind of uh, a kind of militancy that that verged on a kind of uh, almost like militaristic kind of thinking. And so there have been feminist critiques of that, and um, the extent to which yeah, particular theology is called the liberation theology, I suppose, is up to the the person doing it or the community. So so right related to that. Um... I love you. Praxis is a huge part of liberation theologies, and you've kind of you've made that case really clear. Like it's, it's not it's 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 how we kind of manifest our commitments in the world and how we, how we live, and I I think that part of I mean Todd sort of said this. I think part of what he was drawn to in you, and I think what I am too, and probably all of us, is how you express your commitments in the world. And I was curious if you'd be willing to speak to that a little bit. I mean, you're a theologian theologian who's done amazing scholarship, but you show up in the world and in community with a commitment to praxis and a commitment to justice that's very real and authentic. I don't know, would you be willing to speak to that, like share that a little bit, what that, what's that looked like for you, that praxis piece? Yeah, I think that's ever ever changing in some ways for me. I mean, as it is for all of us, right? How to act in a particular moment, how do we live? I think uh, things began to really change for me when I became a pastor. I never wanted to be a pastor. I never had plans to be a pastor. Never in a million years I think I'd be a pastor. I mean, I, I, in some ways I did theology in order to like critique the faith, right? I never really thought of myself as a pastor, but the more I became committed, I mean, and, and the more that I, I read people like James Cone and liberation theologians, the more I was like, well, this stuff is, this is about how to live in the world. This isn't academic. This isn't like, I can't just do this academically. It's about, you know, what it means to live in the world. And so when I became a pastor, I think initially I thought, okay, I'll bring in this stuff, right? I'll bring in my apocalyptic theology. I'll bring in all the stuff I've been reading and I'll just preach at people, you know, and I'll really confront them. And that didn't always go over very well. You know, it was sort of like, okay. Yeah, it was sort of decontextual. It was kind of abstract. It's like, okay, I got Gustavo Gutierrez, you know, saying this stuff from 1971 in Peru. And I'm preaching, you know, uh, from Gutierrez, or I'm preaching from Cohn's Black Theology and Black Power. And people are like, whoa, this is intense. But also, does it really connect? And I think it took a while, right? As a pastor, you have to learn how to connect these ideas to lived reality. And 
in some ways, the methodology of liberation theology is this, and I'd be curious to hear what Mishka would think about some of this stuff, you know, given the kind of Marxist analytic, but, you know, one of the points that liberation theology wants to make is that it's not about the application of theological ideas or the correlation of, of ideas to action in the world, right? Instead, theology must emerge from the praxis, reflection on praxis, and there's a kind of, it's circular in a sense, right? So you talk about, I know in Justice and Peace Studies, the circle of praxis, there's, there's a connection here, you know, uh, with, with Ferreira and figures like that. I think I've lost my, my train of thought with regard to your question. Oh, my own praxis. So yeah, as I was a pastor, I was trying to guide people into action. And what I found was, was that I think, and this is true for a lot of churches, uh, I think particularly progressive white churches, was that people wanted to be activists. They wanted to tackle all the issues and they wanted to uh, speak out against all the issues and be at all the protests and be involved in various ways and I thought to myself, so there's something missing here. This is really tiring, actually, to be at all the events, to be at all the protests, to, to be on the right side of history in all the right ways. I'm thinking we need, we, we need to do something differently. It's not about that. We need to be more deeply involved in, with what's happening in the community. And, and that, that has to begin in relationship with people. We can't do it in this abstract way where it's just about saying we don't like things all the time. We have to build power. We're not building power. I think that was the big revelation for me was we need to learn how to build power in the community to, to actually create the changes that we're talking about wanting to create. It's not just about showing up to protests all the time. So I think that was the shift in me. And you know that led to the work with, at the time, the organization was called Asamblea de Derechos Civiles, the Assembly of Civil Rights. And then we ended up changing our names to Pueblos de Lucha, Pueblos Luce Esperanza, Peoples of Struggle and Hope. But it led to the work with um, undocumented uh, immigrants from Latin America. And through that, the caravan solidarity work, uh, which was more or less unexpected. It felt like what needed to happen. And um, I felt like I had a community around me. You know, I guess I recognized my context. That was big. It was, you know, I have 100 people here, relatively wealthy congregation, an able congregation that wants to do good work in the world. And... I've become so deeply involved in this grassroots community of Spanish speakers. I'm really well positioned, actually, to do something like uh, a solidarity act with the with the migrant caravan. And we had connections uh, with the organizers uh, on the caravan through Asamblea work. And so I guess I started to think, and I was like, if someone's going to do this, it has to be me. And not that it would not it wasn't some kind of heroic act. It's just I recognized the power that had been building to be able to pull this off in a way that could have real impact. And I think we've yet to see the full impact. I still have hope that, that Pueblos will continue to grow and, and strengthen its work. Um, and international solidarity work, I think, is really critical right now. You know, how we do that, though, depends on our context, depends on our praxis, who are our relationships. It's not an abstract thing. It's not just about going and trying to attack all the issues. We can't do that, right? We respond from within our context, from within the relationships that we form. We can join in on things, you know, but I, I guess to build power, to build long-lasting power, which I think is what I'm more and more interested in, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to dig deep. We're gonna have to find relationships across lines of difference. We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to do it 
you know, over eating food together. We're going to have to do it across languages. We're going to have to be creative. We're going to have to build institutions. I don't really like institutions, but we are going to have to like build things up to like, yeah, to do, to do effective, impactful work. And things are always changing. This world is so confusing. It's so hard to know how to act right now, isn't it? So, right. Let Sorry. me on that note push you a little bit. Um, so, as a historical materialist, I've always had this problem with um, faith-based political activism, right? Work, it works both ways. Unfortunately, as we know in this country, that Christianity has been used by the right uh, to, to sort of create this sort of proto-fascist, you know, situations where even now, um, you know, the, the Christianity is being used as a sort of way to justify private property, to justify all kinds of misogyny and, you know, all, you, you name it, right? And yet you've got that whole other tradition coming from liberation theology, which is always pushed against that. And as you know, the, the trajectory of liberation theology back in the 80s, a very anti-communist pope, right? Uh, and, and, and what was happening in Latin America, in Caraguay and places like that. Uh, real real change, uh, um, Sandinista government, uh, Cardinal, who was a big proponent of uh, liberation theology. So, going back to what you just said about organizing, what do we do with religion, broadly speaking, or people who have genuine kind of commitment to working with the poor, but who are also at the same time moving in this right-wing populist direction, right? I mean, both can exist simultaneously, right? It's not that as an historical materialist, you know it can go either way. Revolutionary moments can turn towards fascism as much as they can turn towards progressive change. You know this from history, it's happened many, many times. So I'm just wondering how one addresses the many people who use religion or at least religious texts as a sort of guiding force for their work. But what if that work, for all best purposes, turns out to be in installing a right-wing society? I mean, how does one work through this? I mean, if someone comes up to you and say, I'm a Christian, I believe in helping the poor, I'm anti-war, I'm even against uh, police violence, I'm, you know, I believe in all the things you believe in, but I believe that I have to vote for someone who is anti-choice. For me... That is the crucial issue. And what do you do in that situation? What do you, what do you, how do you work through that in terms of activism, organizing, respecting other people's perspective from where they're coming? So as a historical materialist, that's my question to you. It's a good question. Um, I think the first thing I'd say is that I, I think that re the category of religion needs to be problematized. And I think a, a figure like Talal Assad would be a helpful starting point, and at least it has been for me, in problematizing the category of religion with regard to Islam, with regard to, but just any kind of, this whole category is a kind of modern category in, contra in, in, that's in, in contrast to something we call the secular or non-religious. So I would want to problematize that notion of religion. Uh, and then when we start talking about Christianity, for example, I, I guess I don't think of Christianity, nor do I think of any religion, and using scare quotes, as sort of containers. 
I don't think that that's really how life works. And I don't necessarily, I, I know that people become bound to institutions in various ways and perhaps bound to confessions in various ways, but I don't see it, Christianity as a monolith, an essence that there's a, an, an essential dimension of something called Christianity. And so, yeah, um, I suppose, I suppose that's how I begin the, to answer that question is that, um, I think that there are always within every denomination, for example, whether it's Catholic or Lutheran, uh, Anabaptist, there are always people within those denominations, right, that are breaking the mold, right? There's this heretical tradition, tradition of heresy, right? That uh, people who don't conform to orthodoxy, don't conform to power, uh, the power structures that are kind of breaking from that. And so I, I look for I guess I, I try to pay attention and listen to those spaces that are kind of emerging, you know, as Gutierrez says, from uh, like water from under the earth. I don't know if that answers your question. I, so I don't really think in terms of religion. I don't, I don't think in terms of, okay, now I'm doing Christian theology. Now, there are contexts when, you know, if I'm speaking to someone who says, well, I'm a Christian, okay, well, then we can work with what is it that you believe in? You know, what are, what are your confessions? What do you... Right. But I also I guess I'm a firm believer in that, like what matters is what we do. It's not so much our ideas. It's about what we do. And, you know, that's connected to Anabaptism as well. Right. It's it's about our it's about the fruits. It's about action. Uh, so I don't necessarily care uh, what you believe in uh, or, you know, particular confessions, what you intellectually profess to believe in. I think what matters more is what Gutierrez would call orthopraxis. Orthodoxy, not so much, but orthopraxis. What you do shows us what you believe in or who you believe in, or if that makes sense. I don't know if that answers your question at all. I mean, I'm probably just like avoiding yeah. it, but. No, that does make sense. And it also makes sense to me why you're such a good teacher. Uh, because I think, uh, in a sense, um, th there is no clear answer to this question. I mean, in, in what you're saying is examine your categories, uh, uh, you know, the epistemic framework, which makes you think of the world in a particular way, examine that framework, right? I mean, I think that's one way to think about it, but it's not just a question of Christian with a capital C or Catholic with a capital C or whatever. That's why I like what, what um, liberation theology tries to do is this whole new way of thinking about, about you know, quote-unquote religion. I know Todd had a quick question, and I know we're running out of time, so I'll just hand over to him. Well, I, ju I just wanted to say that... Um you know, I hope that everybody's really enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. And you've gotten to hear uh, Rye talk a, a lot about his commitments and his, you know, his, his sort of intellectual roots and and all of that. And uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that this is the first time that we're recording the uh, podcast and we're not in person. We don't have like the beautiful mics and we don't have our great setup that we have when we're recording in person. So we have done some episodes where we were interviewing folks who were who couldn't be with us. And so we've used a, a sort of virtual setup and we're using that now because Kanishka is, is halfway around the world. And um, we've been uh, definitely sort of performing, you know, um, navigation of this and, and we have done it really well. And I'm really proud of us and I'm really happy um, that it's worked. So I just wanted to acknowledge that if, you know, Tanya who, uh, Hopkins, who is our producer, basically, who's not here, only our producer when we're um, in person. Um, she uh, is going to do, I'm sure, going to do um, miracles with this uh, audio, make it sound really tidy as much as we possibly can. 
But, um, you know, I think we've done a good job in Tanya's absence, but I just want to like recognize Tanya's brilliance and, and the work that she's going to do in post to make this sound good. So um, I'll, I'll hand it back to you, Kanishka, and we can wrap up the episode. It's, it's been really, really great episode and good to see you all and good to hear you all. Yeah. And thanks, Rai, for, for those really, really um, terrific insights. And I think uh, as you can tell, we are all the three of us are learning uh, about the work you're doing, and I and I really want to hope. I hope that we can continue to have these conversations. I very rarely know someone who who can uh, talk about everybody from Du Bois to Kanya as well and and, and thoughtfully as you can. Um, I'm not sure I want to talk about Kanya very much anymore, but um, I, I appreciate your wisdom and uh, thanks for sharing your your expertise in this area with us and um, as, as the books in the background demonstrate um, uh, I think uh, Rai is going to bring us lots of good stuff in the future and, and those of you lucky enough to have a conversation with him one day or to see him down in the barricades um, we'll, we'll know what a terrific guy is so we're signing off now from In the Belly of the Beast Hope to see, hope to see you, but not to see you, but hope that you will hear us um, next uh, when you're back. And thanks, Amy Todd and Ryan, for a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, y'all.